Hello everybody, welcome to episode 11 of Cane Chats. My name is Eric Mojica, your host for the show. So today our guest is Matthew St. John. He is a doctor of physical therapy and also has a CSES from the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And so it was really cool getting to know Matthew because we both went to Avila and he graduated from the kinesiology program right when I got into it. But uh, it was really cool getting to know him and just talking about how the programs evolved over the years. But uh, nonetheless, we got into talking about physical therapy school and his whole process, his whole experience of getting into the, the program at Rockhurst. And so um, we just started talking about some of the clinical work that he does and his day-to-day -day stuff with working with patients and uh, just uh, how he likes to apply both principles out of strength and conditioning and physical therapy because they cross a lot of paths. And so um, Matthew also likes to work with athletes and so um, we kind of got into uh, how to prevent injuries and really there's no answer to all that. It's just uh, it always varies from person to person and so it just comes with uh, having really good evaluations and good assessments to kind of solve the puzzle of the human body to figure out, all right, what is this person dealing with? How did this injury happen and how can we approach, you know, um, not just physical therapy, but just fitness, exercise in general. How can we teach the human body to to adapt and make some changes so that it can move better and feel better. With that, we talked a little bit about stress physiology and neurophysiology. And so uh, if you're someone interested in uh, getting into physical therapy, um, I hope you like this show and uh, you get a lot out of it. On another note, if you're a personal trainer looking for some continuing education units, you should check out ACM 360 Pro. ACM 360 Pro was developed by Mike G, who was on episode five of KN Chats. And so in that episode, we talked about corrective exercise and uh, how we developed the ACM program, how it has uh, some modalities for um, ankle mobility, hip mobility, um, lower back pains, things like that. And so um, it's a really awesome tool that will help you um, just bring better results for your clients. And so if, uh, if you're interested in getting some more information on how to do that, you should check out the website at acm360pro.com. And you can also find that link at our Can Chats website. And if you uh, click on the links from the Can Chats website, you can uh, get uh, access to get up to $200 off on some of the programs that are there. Uh, but make sure you reach out to us either on Instagram, Facebook, or shoot us an email from our website at knchatspodcast.wordpress.com. So with all that said, let's begin the show. This episode of Can Chats begins right now. All right, everybody. Today, our guest is Matthew St. John. He is a doctor of physical therapy and also has a CSCS. So welcome, Matthew. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Awesome to have you, man. So I uh, just kind of want to start it off. You kind of tell your story, your whole background, where you went to school and yeah. all your clinical work. Okay, cool. So I, uh, I graduated here at uh, Abilene University 2013 uh, with a degree in kinesiology. Um, from there, I started PT school at Rockhurst uh, and graduated Rockhurst uh, 2017 with my doctorate of physical therapy. Uh, from there, I got a job, uh, Liberty Hospital Sports Medicine in the Northland, uh, outpatient orthopedic um, clinics. It says sports, but we see a little bit of everything uh, orthopedic-wise, and I've been there for almost two years. Okay, awesome. So, um, what was uh, probably the biggest challenges going through physical therapy school? 
Uh, physical therapy school is just, it's a grind. I mean, it's three years and it's very intensive, three semesters a year. So I would say just the grind of everything and just kind of how fast paced it is, just because you got so much content you're trying to squeeze in in a short period of time. So just, I think the fast paced nature of physical therapy school, along with just the amount of content you're getting is probably one of the biggest challenges while still trying to have a social life. And you know, it was like right when the Royals were going like to the oh, World man. Series runs so and <laughs> trying to manage everything there. It's just definitely, you know, trying to find that balance of getting the schoolwork done you need to do, but also trying to have a little fun as well, so. Mm -hmm. And uh, for those of uh, those students who are watching the show and are interested in getting into physical therapy school, mm -hmm. um, what's that process like as far as graduating with your uh, bachelor's degree and then what's the next step from there? Yeah, so the, everybody asks me, okay, what degree do you need to get to to get into physical therapy school? And you can you can literally have any degree um, just as long as you hit all the prerequisites. So I think we had, we had people in my class who had like communications degrees and just random things, but they had all the, all the, the prereqs. So I think the biggest thing is just making sure you do well in your science courses. Um, they look like, I think high GPA in your science and prereq courses are gonna be very key. Um, getting a good GRE score as well. Um, and then just being able to, you know, not get burned out on the application process just because it is a long application, it's a long process. Um, be, be good at an interview, that kind of thing. But uh, my biggest advice would be just put in, if you're willing to put in the work, you know, the rest will, the rest will take care of itself. Cause they, they say the, some of the hardest things to do is just get into PT school and then once you're in, then then it's, it's downhill from there. So. Yeah, <laughs> right on. So, um, so clinical work, how did you start off, you know, working in, did you start working at hospitals? Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so the way Rockhurst is set up, the main first two years are built based on building the foundation. So a lot of anatomy, a lot of biomechanics, exercise science, your, your differential diagnosis classes, medical conditions, neuro, all your base work. And then the last year is kind of centered around the clinics. So, uh, the way it's changed a little bit, but the way kind of my cohort had, we had a kind of short clinical, which I, I did in my hometown, um, and then we had three longer clinicals, and then you have to hit an outpatient, um, and then an inpatient, and then just kind of an out of town. So I got a good mix of, of a rural, rural education, um, and then just some outpatient orthopedic. I did uh, nine weeks in an acute setting as well. So I got a little bit of everything in my, in my orthopedic, uh, and then kind of neuro uh, clinical education. So, and then from there, I just, I, I applied for a few jobs going out of school and the Liberty Hospital was the best fit for me kind of coming out of school and it's, it's been great since, so. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, um, what kind of patients do you typically work with? Uh, I work with a various, various amount of uh, patient population. So I think my youngest patient right now is nine years old. I think my oldest right now is 93. So just a wide range. Um, good range of pre-op, good range of post-op, you know, some people coming in with just some overuse injuries as well. So it's, it's a good mixture of orthopedic um, post-op, orthopedic kind of pre-op, and then orthopedic just general. So um, I would say that probably 25 to 40% of my caseload is sports specific, but other than that, it's just general orthopedics, so. Okay, cool. So what is a typical new session with uh, a new person was gotcha. how do you usually start that off and then where does that progress yeah to? so uh right now just kind of in missouri we have to have a script from a physician um, hopefully that'll kind of change coming soon i know there's a bill in the 
the Senate right now to hopefully get us some direct access. Um, but right now, just kind of you get a script from the doctor. It might say eval and treat hip pain, might say eval and treat shoulder impingement. You just get some general um, diagnosis. I kind of like it when it's more broad, just say hip pain, then I can kind of figure it out from there. Um, so I'm I start off with just kind of an interview, a subjective interview, kind of get a baseline of the history of what the patient's going through, just a quick kind of red flag check, yellow flag check, just to make sure there's nothing like serious going on that might I might be able to tease out in my subjective interview. And then from there, dive deep into some movement patterns, some range of motion, some strength, and then if I need to do some special testing after that to figure out, okay, like, is it rotator cuff, is it labrum, then I can kind of go from there as well, so. What are some of those general tests that you typically uh, General tests, it's, just, it's like lower body, I, I, I watch, my patients don't know, but I, as soon as they come in the door, I'm watching them. So I'm watching how they walk, you know, from the desk to the waiting room, to the waiting room, to the kind of the table I take them to, or the room I take them to, um, just because if they don't know I'm watching them, then they're probably gonna be in their more natural right. uh, movement pattern, where if I'm like, okay, walk down to the wall and back to me, like they're gonna change how they're moving. So I try to get, a pre-basis on how they're moving, and then I might see, okay, how do they change their movement based off of that too. So I kind of look at that. If it's a lower extremity, I have somebody squat. Um, if it's an upper extremity, I might have them squat with like in an overhead position. So I build everything around a functional movement, and then what's more functional than a squat in my eyes? So I try to build something, you know, either, even if it's a upper extremity, I might build in like an overhead squat, or I might look at a push-up, or I might look at something try to be functional. And then from there, go into range of motion, strength, and then my special testing. And then like if it's a back, then I'll look at reflexes, some more of those spine-specific things as well. So, okay. And so knowing the degree of schooling that you have, how much do you value something that's kind of like functional movement screen, things like that? Uh, I like the functional movement screen a lot. Um, and, you know, I learned it here as a student, and I still use elements of that um, daily. Um, whether it be the overhead squat, whether it be the shoulder um, shoulder tap, whether it be um, some lateral hop stuff. I, I use it quite a bit um, and I think it's very valuable. Um, you know, some people would argue it might be too cookie cutter, but for me, like I think it really, it's a good starting point. Um, and I'm not basing my whole examination over it, but I think it's an important piece of my examination using some of the components of the functional movement screen. Um, and then the SFMA as well, some of the, cause then that can kind of go a little bit more into treatment base as well, so. Yeah, I agree with that. And some stuff that we've been learning in the master's program here at mm -hmm. Avila, just talking about um, the functional movement screen and then they have this functional capacity screen now. Uh -huh. They have a couple other different ones that are a little bit more, yeah. I guess, athletic looking. Uh -huh. um, and what we kind of just concluded to is that it's just, it's a tool. And exactly. so it just depends on how you use it. And if you know how to use it, how to apply to someone, then you can find what you're looking for. No, I would agree with that 100%. You know, it's not the it's not the tool, it's just a tool. And it's important, you know, if everything's, a, if you know, all you have is a hammer, everything's like a nail. So it's important to have any tools in your in your toolbox. And I, I think that's a, a key piece to kind of practice and kind of how I use to assess. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, as far as being a physical therapist, how does the communication work with the doctor? Um, so it's, I, I have pretty good relationships with some uh, with the majority of the doctors we work with. and. Most of the time it's just like, take it and run. Um, if anything weird pops up, uh, you know, contact me. But, you know, about every 10 visits, I'll, I'll try to do a progress note. Um, if they go back before that, I try to do a progress note and send it to the doc before they go back. So I'm always keeping that in mind. Okay, how many times have I seen them? When do they go back to doc? Because I want to make sure they have the most updated information when they go back. So a lot of it's just 
you know, faxing. No, sometimes if something just strange is going on or if I don't think they're progressing the way they should or just something that's a yellow or red flag that's concerning me, I might get on the phone, talk to, talk to the doctor, usually talk to a nurse and then the nurse will kind of relay that and then if it's serious then uh, they'll be like, okay, get them back or talk to you directly. So a lot of that's just, you know, that, that trust that they have in me to do my job and then just that know that if, you know, if something's going on that's wonky, then that communication piece as well. So, okay. And uh, what are those yellow and red flags? Like what, is it like just strictly like range of motion things? Is it like something neuro neurological um, or maybe like they can't respond to something? Like what, what do you look for? Yeah, I think it just depends on the diagnosis. Like, you know, if we're looking at post-op, um, big risk would be like infection. So if I see any signs of infection, if I see any signs of clotting, that, that'd be a huge red flag. Um, maybe it's compliance. Um, you know, maybe it's like, okay, they're, they haven't showed up four times in a row. Like, I can't get a hold of them. Well, I need to let the doctor know, like, hey, like I, I'm trying all I can here. Like patient's not compliant kind of a thing. Um, or it might just be like, okay, like I know that they have back pain, but you know, this back pain is this, this, and this. Like I think they should be, um, looked at for something neurological or something systemic. So um, just using the differential diagnosis tools that we are educated on just to make sure that the patient's getting the best health care um, possible is kind of those yellow and red flags that we're looking for. So, okay, cool. And uh, so I know you like working with athletes, I so know, let's yeah. go into that. So what are the typical injuries or what sports do you typically end up seeing? Is it yeah, really broad? It's or? kind of cyclic um, depending on, you know, the season we're in. So right now, seen a lot of muscle strains, a lot of uh, track injury type things, um, you know, baseball players, a lot of shoulders, a lot of elbows. So we're seeing a lot of, it depends on the season. So right now we're seeing a lot of those early track, early baseball injuries, and then some of the basketball and wrestling injuries that can wait till the end of the season to get addressed. So, um, so right now we're kind of in that towards the end of the towards the beginning of the summer we'll see you know some more kind of the chronic baseball issues that I tough through the rest of the season but now I need in um, might see some early like off-season conditioning injuries um, and then from there in the fall see some more kind of more football cheerleading soccer specific injuries as well so um, I'm, sh I'm sure you know since in Missouri female soccer seasons and uh, in, in the spring, so we'll see probably in the summer, probably see an increase in ACL, some of, some of the soccer type injuries as well. So it just depends on kind of the season more so than anything. Okay, so a really big question that mm -hmm. I get all the time as a personal trainer, why do injuries happen? Got you, and I think that's a, I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a fluke accident, you know, um, I landed wrong, I got pushed odd, you know, sometimes it's just like things you can't control. And then sometimes I think, you know, it might be a training, like maybe we've focused too hard on this and missed the issue on this. So it might be an imbalance issue. Um, but as far as why they happen, it's just, I think we put, our body can't keep up with the demands we put on it, whether that's a training fault, whether that's just, we're pushing ourselves super hard, just something, there's a breakdown somewhere along the lines. And then when you get that breakdown, that's when an injury would happen. And that's the hardest part for us, right? The puzzle is trying to yeah. fill in the gaps and figure out, okay, like this person was, was he or she not prepared yeah. and to you don't, do this task? Or... You have to be careful because you don't want to tell somebody like, yeah, I just don't think you were prepared. I think you were set up to fail. You don't want to put, you don't want to put it like that either. So, you know, I just, I think it's one of those where it's like, you, you know, there's a breakdown somewhere. It's like, but like piecing that puzzle together, it's kind of, it's kind of fun though too. Just kind of figure out, okay, like where are the imbalances at? Why, why are they having the symptom and how can I change it? 
And so what are the biggest obstacles when you have a new patient who's an athlete and mm -hmm. you might not have any, um, I don't want to say legitimate, but you ha don't have enough information from where they were before injury. Like how do you go about trying to find how to get them to back to playing time? You. So, you know, if, if I'm having a hard time figuring out where they were before, I know, okay, what deficits do they have right now? So then I can, at least I have, I always have a starting point. And even if they don't have any deficits, okay, like let's go back to the basics. Let's look at your basic foundational movements. So, you know, we can always look at squat. We can always look at, um, you know, if, it's an overhead athlete, how, how does the scapula move? We can always, we have our foundational movements or foundational things that we can look at as a starting point. And then from there, as we go along, we'll get more and more information as we go along. And so, you know, sometimes you might just start off very basic, but you tell them like, you know, I know this seems very remedial and this seems very basic, but this is gonna be the foundation for everything to get you back on the field. And usually if you put it like that, there'll, there'll be some fine with that, so. Okay, cool. Um, so lately, I've been getting into a lot of neurology stuff, and actually mm -hmm. this summer I'm going to be taking a neurophysiology class. Cool. And so um, it's kind of changed the way that I look at movement because, uh -huh. you know, I was always kind of along the lines of, you know, muscles move bones and everything is more postural based, muscle balance and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But then the more that I kind of look into neurology, I realize that muscles move bones, but the brain mm -hmm. function is what actually moves the yeah. muscles. And so... Um, just curious, like what what do you know about neurology and how much do you uh, apply that to what you're you know when you're testing? Um, so uh, I took a course recently on kind of pain neuroscience education, and some of the things that like we went over as far as like your body's alarm system and some of the foundations of like why do we have pain uh, started to connect some dots. You know, like doesn't even have to be a chronic pain patient to have this pain science kind of approach. So even if they're post-op or even if there might be something, you know, going on with um, kind of how we're perceiving pain even. So um, I, won't, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on like neurology at all, but I, I am finding that there is a piece there, whether it's, you know, like the stresses of like competing or getting a scholarship or whether it's the stresses of just the brain being burnt out I think there is definitely a neurological piece in kind of our practice, and I think we do need uh, to tap into it, especially from a from a postural control, movement control kind of standpoint. You know, I can make someone as strong as I, I can. I can they can test strong, but they might still be weak. So it's like, okay, there there there's something else going on here. So um, I think that it's a big piece um, that I wish I was getting better at. Um, but I definitely think that. Um, there's definitely some room for development in that as well. So, yeah. And the reason I, I say that's because I got to experience a little bit of that uh -huh. because uh, I herniated a disc in my lower back okay. my senior year. And so um, I'm doing a lot better now, but I yeah. still struggle uh -huh. you know, with a lot of hip pain and lower back pain and stuff like that. And so um, I got to meet up with, uh, with a physical therapist uh, uh -huh. not too far from here. And he does a lot of neuroscience based uh -huh. kind of stuff. And so, we did a lot of uh, just movement screens, but mm -hmm. he was also doing some some manual testing mm -hmm. onto my legs and how well I can up, abduct, adduct, and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And so um, it was really bizarre to me, but we were doing a lot of vestibular ocular drills okay. and doing stuff to where, you know, we're getting my eyes to focus on certain movements mm -hmm. and, um, and then just providing like a kind of palpation mm -hmm. just to provide a little stimulus to my body. And then 
I noticed, and I was very conscious of it, and, and my pain started to go away, mm -hmm. and then I was able to move a lot better. And so, um, it's just stuff that I'm just so interested in, and I'm just really curious on, you know, how, how popular this is. Yeah, one of my favorite things to do is like, if someone's having a really hard time, like moving their arm, or just like really fearful, is like, you'll like, kind of put a mirror, and split them with the mirror, and it's like, let's say my, my left arm is the arm that I'm afraid to move, well, I'll have them look in the mirror, move the right arm and then I'll have them move their left arm at the same time and then before long before uh, before long you'll just see them start to raise their left arm a little bit higher because their brain sees oh like mm -hmm. I can do this so a lot yeah. of times you know there is that neural piece in there so and I think the, the part with that is that we I think that our brain is just so designed into survival that it gets mm -hmm. in a protective mode and sometimes yeah. it blocks Things from happening exactly and then like you know sometimes just even more at a cellular level we just keep getting constant stimulus constant stimulus and the brain just it's like okay well i'm going to increase my threshold and increase my threshold to a point where it's just like constant pain so mm -hmm. yeah. all right cool um so more stuff on athletes so what about the mental side of recovery so how much coaching do you have to do with yeah. that? Because we wear multiple hats of what we do. Right? Yeah, and, it, and sometimes you have to be careful too. You don't want to get yourself in trouble. Um, and it just depends a lot of like, okay, where are they coming from? Is, you know, are parents pushing them super hard or are they super motivated, motivated to play at the next level? Um, is it something that they're fearful of? You know, a lot of times, even with like ACLs, a lot of it is getting them to trust their leg again or getting them like, hey, you can do this single leg hop. Like, so some of it, you know, there's a psychological standpoint of like, my leg's gonna fail me again, or my arm's gonna fail me again. Trying to coach them up, like, nope, you have the strength, you can do this, starting slow, baby steps, kind of build them up from there. And some of it's like, you know, like, I guess if it's, you know, more of an external pressure, like acknowledging that and then finding a way to kind of tiptoe and, you know, help, help them with those problems as well. So it's a little bit trickier when it's the external um, um, factors. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit easier to kind of deal with when it's just more of a, a fear of the leg failing you or your limb failing you. So, and so, how do those progressions kind of evolve from person to person? I mean, what do yeah. you look for? How do you determine right this person's ready for the next step? So you know, a lot of times it's it's all objective based. So like, okay, do they have the strength on two legs to be able to kind of support themselves with one leg? So then I might put them on a shuttle and kind of do some single leg from there and be like, okay, do they have the control of single leg here to manage it more kind of in weight bearing or on the ground? So a lot of it's just kind of realizing like, okay, like they've hit, like in my mind, they put a milestone here, like let's progress them a little bit further and not missing a step. Cause sometimes, you know, it, it's, they're doing better. They're feeling great it's really tempting to kind of start something early before they might be ready. And that's the worst thing I can do. So in my mind, you know, not skipping steps, even though if they're progressing well and just kind of sticking to the foundations, that's going to build, build them up the best that I can. So, and so what I want to ask you now is about your strength conditioning mm -hmm. certification. So how does that tie into physical therapy? Yeah. Um, and I think there, there is a relation there as far as strength and conditioning. In my case, I passed, I, I took my CSCS, uh, when I was in PT school with some of my classmates. And then from there, we started helping in the Rockhurst strength and, uh, like athletic department and programming some strength and conditioning workouts for some of the, the sports teams there. And for me, that was a really good way to not only just get, get bodies and look at movement and understand movement, but at the same time, understand, okay, this is how a 12-week strength cycle works, or okay, this is how 
we're going to build strength in eight weeks. What does a cycle look like? And then, you know, doing 20 reps isn't enough. Maybe I need to do, you know, an overload or kind of understanding basic strength and conditioning, strength and conditioning principles in a practical way was big and kind of me kind of developing like, how am I going to prescribe exercise to a patient? Or just even communicating like, hey, like your squat looks bad or hey, like your squat could be better and here's why and kind of making those connections like, okay, like they're shifting, what does that mean? And like, how do I correct it? So it was really good hands-on approach to kind of work on foundational movements like the squat, the deadlift, uh, like a press. So, and I still use, you know, a lot of, I, I, I like using a barbell and weights and kind of how I practice um, today even. So a lot of what I do is strength and conditioning base it just might be in a different scale or it might be scaled down or it might be just a little bit different but as far as early on getting you know practice at assessing movement and communicating movement that was huge for me and now i think it's paying off because i have those foundations of okay here's how you deadlift here's how you squat here's how you do these things properly so i can feel confident that they're doing it in my clinic before they're going to do it before um you know back at weight class for their sport because i want to make sure that they look good doing it and you know if they don't look good doing it well i want to you know i want to teach them like okay this is how we do it because from the same time that's preventative and that keeps them out of my clinic in the future so and so i follow a lot of guys like eric cressy mike reinald and mm -hmm. so they all kind of share the same theme about things is yes like a good strength and conditioning coach understands the physical therapy world, the good physical therapist understands the good um, strength and conditioning background. And so, yeah. Um, and we work and uh, the clinic I work with, we have two strength and conditioning uh, coaches that we do. We do adult fitness and then athletic performance classes as well. So, you know, they're they're in the trenches, you know, teaching movement patterns at an early age and loading them when it's appropriate or taking a load away when it's appropriate. and really just kind of found it building, you know, better athletes and a fountain by giving them a foundation of strength and conditioning. And then like once, you know, they work on the strength and conditioning, they go to practice, practice works on sports specific stuff. So I think it's really important that kind of the work we're doing, you know, with, with the youth of the Northland, just kind of build the foundation to make them better athletes and make them successful as well. So, and so for young athletes, I'm talking about maybe pre high school, in mm -hmm. high school, what are the biggest recommendations that you have for them, just general athletes, as far as how to prepare, one, to per, for performance, but also to prevent injury? Yeah, I think, you know, just building your, building the foundation, making sure that, like, if you are squatting, make sure they have a really good air squat, making sure they have a really good squat to a target, make sure they have a really good, you know, even if it's not a deadlift with a barbell, even, like, a foundational hip hinge or... Um, picking up uh, like a light dumbbell, like making sure that those movement patterns are sound because if your movement patterns are sound, when they're appropriate to be loaded more, when they're appropriate to kind of push a little bit more, those movement patterns aren't gonna fail them. So I think just building your movement patterns and making sure, you know, think about how you move, your setup position, your routine, kind of setting that in stone at an early age, that's gonna make it more appropriate when they're able to load a little bit more middle school, high school, making that a lot safer too. So. And so you were an athlete here at Avalo, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, how has, like, if you look back from today, looking all the yeah. way from when you started, how has everything changed and how you looked at fitness and uh, getting in shape? You know, I was an offensive lineman, so I was, I was 275, you know, 260, 275 towards the end of my career. So a lot of it was like, I got to put on weight, I got to put on mass. So a lot of how I was training was just like eat everything in sight and then just lift heavy. So, you know, and... 
I, I wouldn't say that I put as much of a focus on a movement pattern because, you know, I was 20, 21 years old, my body felt great, never not, anything failed me. So I don't think it was until kind of PT school where I realized like, yeah, I need to work on my foundational movements. I need to work on, you know, not shooting my hips up when I deadlift or I need to work on, you know, keeping my knees out as I squat. So I don't think as much of a focus was put on movement patterns um, as it should have been. And that's to no one's fault. I just, I think, you know, the, the, the way that, you know, things have progressed in the last five years or so, it's, it's been based more on kind of, okay, we need to move better. And I think that's only gonna increase from there. So, and so, did it, everything just change once you got into physical therapy school? Just how you viewed yeah, everything so, that you've done before and exactly. made you kind of rethink and, uh -huh. yeah. And I think, you know, I think some of the steps that the NCAA are making, you know, making it mandatory to have like NSCA, like for, uh, strength and conditioning coaches or a certain, you know, in your weight rooms and helping with, you know, strength and conditioning in that standpoint, I think that's only gonna kind of help kind of the way we look at strength and conditioning in the future as well, so. But yeah, like PT school happened. I'm like, okay, like this is probably why my knees hurt, or this is probably why my shoulder hurts when I do this. And then like kind of modifying that, I'm like, oh yeah, like my shoulder doesn't hurt when I do it this way. It definitely was, was a kind of an eye opener. So. Mm -hmm. And so, um, how many baseball players do you typically work with? Uh, so. Is it often that you get to see those guys? Or? Yeah, we have a we have a uh, my supervisor like specializes in baseball players, so he'll see the majority of the ball players, the throwers. But you know, we we do see a good chunk of throwers in there, and then every once in a while, I get a couple as well. So it's it's a it's a population I really enjoy working with, um, in that I think you know as a whole, our clinic excels at really well because my supervisor is so good at treating those baseball players. So. So what's your take on all arm injuries that happen in baseball? Like, mm -hmm. what, what's your starting point? Where do you, yes. where do you begin to look at that pitcher? Gotcha. So kind of starting point is I want to know their throwing history. Like, how many, how how much have you been throwing lately? You know, is it is it a velocity issue? Is it pain? Like, what's going on? Number one, and then two, kind of okay. I want to look at rotator cuff strength. I want to look at arm strength. I want to look at um, kind of just the shoulder girdle as a whole and determine, okay, is it, is it a, is a strength issue or is it something else going on? And then from there, kind of, kind of diving more deep into the specific structure that might be hurting them, whether it's the elbow, whether it's the shoulder. So, so how much do you attribute a pitcher's biomechanics? Into yeah. And that's, pitchers? that's, that's tricky because, you know, you look at the MLB and some guys have really good biomechanics and, you know, they, they struggle to hit the majors and you know there are, there's other guys whose biomechanics don't make sense and they're they're throwing at an elite level and no pain and no injuries so you know i think the biomechanics are important but i don't think it tells the whole story either right. so right and so when it comes to shoulder injuries mm -hmm. um so when i started playing i was really into rotator cuff stuff and all mm -hmm. i knew was bands going to internal external rotation, going through all these uh -huh. band exercises, and then as um, as my career went on, just starting to deal with more shoulder pains and things uh -huh. like that, I started to learn so much about the scapula. Yeah. And, and for me, like the scapula, it's such a tricky complex of that shoulder girdle, just because there's so many moving pieces exactly. in there. And so, uh, what what can you tell us about yeah. just overall scapular movement, stability, yeah. mobility? So, any overhead athlete I get, I, I want to see how does their scapular move. And so, you know, I'm gonna do you know overhead tests, see kind of where that scapular position ends up. Is it at mid axillary line? Is it beyond mid axillary line? Is it you know is it kind of below that? So, how does it move? I might you know do some modes and see okay is there restriction there? Look at some lat length because that's gonna 
affected as well. And then from there, I might, you know, get them on their back and look at internal and external rotation. Okay, do they have the full motion that we're looking for or are they lacking in a certain position? And then from there, dive deep into more of, you know, that rotator cuff muscle, just that complex. Um, but I think, you know, that scapulohemoral, you know, movement is really important um, in kind of achieving full range of motion and kind of achieving, you know, what we're wanting to do with our arms as well. So. Um, what's, what do you commonly see as far as those muscle imbalances? Yeah, like where, yeah. Not of, just baseball, but in general, you know, like, like what's an overhead athlete uh -huh. or, yeah. you know, a lot of times you might, they might have really strong pecs and really strong, you know, front muscles, but then the posterior cuff, posterior, you know, subscapularis, supraspinatus might be a little, not necessarily weak because they're strong to begin with, but we might not be getting the most out of them if possible. A lot of times you'll see kind of scapula not getting to the, the point you should get to and kind of overhead rotation as well. And then so, and a lot of times you might see an external rotation limitation as well, or you might see too much. I guess it just depends on the athlete, but you're gonna see some sort of internal, uh, external rotation kind of deficit as well. Um, a lot of times it's just more of, you know, my front muscles are probably a little bit stronger than my back muscles. And then from there, maybe overactive lats or we're relying too much on our bigger muscles and our, our smaller stabilizers might not be kind of functioning the way we want them to function. So, okay, cool. So I have a really general question mm -hmm. and it's stuff that I really rely on my personal experience and how I felt with it, but mm -hmm. heat or ice, when is the appropriate time to use one or the other? So that's the million dollar question. And you know, it's such a it's such a funny um, even topic in the physical therapy world because some people are very much in the you know heat before to increase blood flow, ice after to settle everything down. Um, but then you know other people got to look at the research. It does isn't one isn't indicated over the other. But I know from my personal experience that in the po like especially a post op world, you know ice ice after a session or ice is going to help with that inflammation. It's going to help you know get our quads back faster and you know knee injuries or it's going to help you know just settle things down after we work it so i think it just depends really on the person but i kind of fall more into that heat before activity ice after activity kind of standpoint um it doesn't i don't really fall into the rabbit hole of chronic versus acute too much but you know as a general rule of thumb i'll tell patients like you know we want to make sure that we're warmed up our tissues are feeling good before activity so if you want to heat you know heat before an activity and then if you want to kind of ice after that would kind of help but as a whole, like, I think it really depends on the case and like some people just won't ice and some people won't eat. So just kind of finding that, finding that middle ground sometimes as well is important, so. And that's how I always felt about things too, especially for baseball pitchers. Mm -hmm. I always just say, you know, do what feels really good. Exactly. If you're about to move, don't ice it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't wanna, like I always give, kind of give the analogy, like imagine you have a rubber band and you just freeze that thing. And yeah. You start to pull on it, that thing will snap on you. And so, what I learned was, uh, what helped me a lot is I would always ice and then heat. Yeah, a little contrast but, even. And that would sometimes help me avoid general soreness because I would yeah. get a lot of soreness in the forearm area. Mm -hmm. But I came across this video and I can't remember who it was. I think it was some physical therapist that was talking about this, but um, he was talking about how the body has its own natural mechanism to mm -hmm. reduce inflammation. And so how much do you buy into the fact that heat and ice can sometimes teach our body to rely so much on that ice and heat. Mm -hmm. What's your take on that? You know, I think our bodies are really good at adapting the stresses we put on it. So I think there is probably something to, um, just like anything, like 
if it feels good, you know, our bodies are gonna be like, well, I need this to feel good. Um, so I think there is probably a little something there um, as far as like becoming reliant on it or becoming like, I need this versus like, you know, just kind of letting things sort out how it may. But I, I, haven't, I haven't looked too much into that either. So okay. it's hard for me to speak yeah. on that, so. And uh, what other tools do you guys use besides, you know, specific exercise? Do you guys use like stem therapy, any ultrasound stuff? Like yeah. what's, uh, how do you look for like when this person might need yeah. these tools? And you know, I think it just depends. It's a case by case, um, case by case, uh, I think thing when it comes to if I'm gonna use modality or if I might just use more of a manual approach or I might use more of a strength case or a strength approach. So no matter what, I would say, you know, if my sessions are 45 minutes, I'd say at minimum, you know, if I'm gonna do a modality or if I'm gonna do manual, regardless, they're still getting two, two, uh, two units of uh, therapeutic exercise or therapeutic activity, something just up and moving, because research will back, back up that your active treatments are gonna be what gets the patient better, but you need those passive treatments every once in a while too to kind of, you know, work on range of motion or work on tissue restrictions. So. You know, I think my go-to is more of a manual therapy approach, whether it be a joint move or whether it be, you know, maybe like an instrument-assisted technique. Or uh, I know a lot of physical therapists will use dry needling um, as well, which discussion for a different day. Um, you know, blood flow restriction, um, ice heat. Uh, ice, you know, ultrasound. Um, it, it has, you know, has a purpose. I, don't, I tend to, and what I see, probably don't use it as much. Um, E-STEM, you know, especially post-op, trying to get a quad going, I might use that or might use more of what's called kind of a Russian STEM, um, kind of, but I think it just depends on a case-by-case -case basis. But usually, you know, exercise, manual, um, and then just some of those post-op examples would be kind of what I use the most, so. Okay, cool. So, um, what was the best part of being in physical therapy school? Um, I mean, I really enjoyed, you know, those connections you made, like, even though it's a, it's a long daunting process and it's, it's a grind, you kind of, you make some, you make really good friends along the process. And, you know, sometimes it's just nice to think about like, ah, like we thought we had it hard then. And then like, you know, compared to like the real world, but every once in a while it's like, man, I, I wish I could just go back. Cause you got to see your friends every day. You got to hang out with them outside of class. So I think, you know, just some of that, um, some of that just, you know, you're, you're in it with 47, 48 other people, depending on your program, even more. Just some of that, like, the connections you make, it's definitely, I, I don't know, I, I enjoyed that probably the most out of PT school, so. Okay. Was, uh, was school competitive, or was it really, like, unified? Like, yeah. what was your experience um, with that? You know, I think it's really competitive to get in, and then I think once you're in, you kind of realize we're, we're kind of all, all in this together kind of thing. So, you know, it might be competitive, like, in, like, the eye, like, um, any better than you kind of thing, yeah. or like that kind of thing. You know, you might get a little of that, but for the most part, it's like, okay, what do we need to do to get this knowledge down? And it becomes a real group effort into kind of getting the knowledge in and kind of taking it how we want, so. Were there any new study habits that you had to develop? Uh, so I had to, I mean, I had to change my study habits a lot because, you know, um, what I found worked for me um, in undergrad, you know, like that wasn't enough or that, you know, that was good, you know, but I need, I need to dive deeper. So I found that like, you know, in undergrad, I could, you know, put something off last minute, type it up the night before, yeah. get it in, or PT school, that didn't fly. So it's like, okay, like I need to make sure I have a good sleep routine. I need to make sure I have a good exercise routine. I need to make sure I take care of myself as well. 
and then the rest will kind of come. So I think my, from a time management standpoint, I got a lot better at managing my time. I definitely got more in depth and figured out, okay, how do I need to study and kind of stuck with that. Um, but definitely I, I, I studied a lot more and I, but I, I looked at sleep more and kind of some other things that, you know, you don't necessarily think about, you know, in, in undergrad as well. So yeah. Cause when you're young, you're just, you got all the energy in the world, right? Yeah. It's just like, you mean like your professor's like, Oh, don't put this off to the last minute. And we're like, well, I'm going to take that as a challenge now. <laughs> or, or in PT school, they tell you that and you're just like, ah, I better listen there. So, yeah. you know, you, you learn your lessons and you adapt and you, you get better at studying and, you know, especially with for the boards you know because the board like the board exam was such a long process like it was more of a marathon than anything you know so four or five hour test and like you you have to build up to that so like i think you know studying for the boards was probably like my holy cow i know how to study now kind of a thing but you know i i, I wasn't used to putting in two three hours a day you know studying after being in the clinic all day and i wasn't used to you know maybe doing six seven hours on the weekend so you know, I definitely think it was one of those processes where I was like, man, like I got out what I put in, but you got to put in a lot too. So. And uh, just overall in physical therapy, what's mm -hmm. the dropout rate? And because um, like, um, like, I know it's really hard. Yeah, I don't know specific numbers um, as far as like PT school dropout rate. I know we started with 48, we graduated with 46. So I think, I mean, I think that's, that's really good, good, right? And I, I know there's a there's a pretty high burnout rate in the first five, 10 years of practice, but I don't have those specific numbers, but there is a relatively high burnout rate, I think, but. Do you think it's just because of uh, just the amount of information you guys have to have? Uh, or? It's tough. I think, you know, if, if someone were to, um, you know, not so not so to drop out or kind of fall behind in PT school, just because of how fast paced it is, how much knowledge there is. Um, but especially at Rockhurst, like the professors were so good and like making sure that like if you were having problems or if you were having trouble with something, like they would kind of take you up and be like, here, we'll help you or we'll kind of like, what do we need to do to help you? They were really, you know, approachable and like office with their office hours and kind of being there outside of class as well. So. I, I wouldn't know. I think, so it's hard for me, to, you know, because Rockers was such a good, you know, nurturing environment. It's hard for me to say for other programs, okay, like, is right. it the content? Is it, is it that? Because, you know, the experience I got was like, hey, like, just keep going. Like, we'll help you along the way if we need to. Like, you just, you gotta, but, um, but yeah, I don't know much about the, I guess, the dropout rate. Yeah, so. okay, cool. So, uh, biggest influences in your career? Actually, so this is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting route I guess I took towards physical therapy. Um, I have a twin brother who has cerebral palsy so growing up we were in and out of the uh, physical therapy a lot and you know I, I would go along just because I mean my parents needed to take me along too so you know from an early age I would say like Ben's early you know PTs were probably a big influence on like why I chose that because I would see the progress he was making and I'd see like you know the fun stuff they were doing and I would want to do it too and then and then from there, growing up in sports and like seeing that, like, okay, how can it, you know, get me back on the field or how is it changing athletes' lives? I think, you know, from that standpoint, like it got me like really hungry to get in, into the, um, the, the profession. And then once I was in PT school, you know, a lot of my professors became mentors as well after you graduate because they want to make sure that you're succeeding. They want to check in on you soon. And then, you know, you make PT friends along the way and like you have like your support system of like people you can call if you're having trouble with a patient or bounce ideas back off of too. So 
you know, I would say a lot of my colleagues too um, that I met along the way in PT school and that I work with now and that I met with and worked with in my clinical rotationships uh, are definitely some some influences and some mentors that I have now too. So um, if you're a PT and you're looking for some good content to follow though, I think Jeff Moore and kind of the Institute of Clinical Excellence or ICE Physio, I think they're doing a phenomenal job. They're, they're working on building mentorship and you know, kind of a residency feel without kind of having that residency as well. So, you know, if you're looking, I think, using, I utilize a lot of their content, a lot of their information. I think that's helping me kind of become a better physical therapist as well, so. All right, any uh, other trainers, um, physical therapists that you follow, maybe some blogs, some yeah, Instagram um, pages or anything? I. I, I like uh, I like the work that like Mitch uh, Mitch Bad Babcock and then uh, and then Alan are doing with some of the clinical uh, clinical fitness athlete um, stuff. I uh, I like what um, like I said what Jeff Moore is doing. Um, there's a guy out in kind of Garden City, Kansas, Mill, and other things. Brian Barker, but I think he's a great physical therapist as well. Um, and then. As far as like the prehab guys, I don't know if you've heard of them. I think they do a really yeah. good job. Um, and then just off the top of my head, that's kind of what's coming to mind. But I'm sure if I sat down and looked at like content, like okay, like that's really good stuff. That's really good stuff. There's a lot of good stuff out there. It's just just finding it. So yeah, uh, Aaron Horshey. Yeah, the squat He's squat one, university. Yeah, that's yeah. one of my favorite ones. Yeah, he does good work too. Yeah, so. awesome. So where can people find you? Uh, emails and yeah. social media pages. Um, my Instagram is all lowercase stg under or stj underscore dpt. Um, I'm trying to build that up right now, make it a little bit more educational, a little bit more informational. Uh, so kind of a process there. Uh, Twitter is stj fifty one, and then if you want to email me, uh, Matthew m a t t h e w stj fifty one at gmail.com. So okay. Right on, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming. Yeah, it's, it's been fun. So Awesome. And uh, if any of you guys want to um, give Matthew a little follow on Instagram or anything, make sure to reach out to him. I'm sure he'd be happy to help you with some physical therapy stuff. Definitely. Any questions, just let me know. All right. Well, thanks for coming, man. Thanks for having me. All right. And that concludes our interview with Matthew St. John. If you're a student interested in physical therapy school or have any questions about your own health, feel free to reach out to Matthew on Instagram, Twitter, or his email at matthewstj51 at gmail.com. If you're a fan of the show, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast on all our media platforms. The show is available on YouTube, SoundCloud, and iTunes on the Apple Podcast app. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, as well as our website at knchatspodcast.wordpress.com. I want to give a huge shout out to all our viewers and listeners. Thank you for following the show, and please make sure to share the podcast with your friends and family. Also, if there are any specific topics or questions you'd like for us to cover on the show, please let us know in the comments on any of our KN Chats pages. Stay tuned for more episodes because we have more coming your way. This is Eric Mojica signing off. Until next time, this is KN Chats.